Last week we finished up our sermon series, Word for Word, where we were diving deep into a particular text and figuring out how to study our Bible for ourselves and see how that we can mine the text. And uh, now we're going to kind of go in the opposite direction and we're going to kind of get away from kind of textual uh, and we're going to go theological. And so we're uh, calling this new series Everyday uh, Theology. For some of you uh, in this series, you're going to learn some theological truth that you might not have previously known or under, understood. And for some of you, you'll already know the theological truth, but you're going to understand how you might apply that to your life. Kind of have both goals in mind. Uh, but imagine a scenario with me for a moment. Imagine that you came into church today and set beside you was a young woman that you did not recognize, and uh, you begin to notice a couple of things about her. You notice she's dressed nice, but you also notice she doesn't really know much about what's going on. She doesn't know when to stand up. She doesn't know if she's supposed to sing or not sing. She doesn't really know much about church. You can tell that. You notice that she's got a small notebook and that she's jotting down a lot of notes, even before the sermon, that she's jotting down a lot of things, taking notes. You get curious, and so after the service, you introduce yourself to her, and she lets you know that she's a reporter and that she's with the local paper, and she's writing a piece on Christianity. But she really doesn't know that much about Christianity. She's an atheist, or maybe she says she's an agnostic, and she didn't grow up in church, she doesn't go to church, she's never really been to church, but she says she wants to learn more about Christianity, and Christians in particular, so she can write this piece. And so she's wanted to learn all that she can, and so she decided to attend our church and sit beside you that morning. And then she looks at you and she asks, you know what would be really helpful to me? It would be really helpful to me if I could ask you a few questions about what you believe. And then she asks, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? Particularly, what do you believe about God that is different from what a Muslim might believe about God? Or what a Jehovah's Witness might believe about God? Or what a Mormon might believe about God? She goes on to say, okay, what do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about heaven and hell? What do you believe about gender and marriage and human dignity? And she began to ask you all those questions, would you have an answer? Would you be able to say, yes, here is what we believe and why? And then let's say all of that goes really well. You answer her questions and uh, you blow her away. But then she looks at you and she says, well, you know, the piece I'm doing isn't just about Christianity, but also about Christians and what they believe and how what they believe shaped their lives. And then what imagine she says to you, I know what's weird, but would it be okay if I actually came to live with you and your family for the next week and as an embedded reporter to observe you and your natural habitat and to see how what you believe affects your day-to-day -day life? I want to see how your life and your family and your work are different because you're a Christian and you say you believe these things. I want to see how they're different than my life as an atheist. And let's just say you allowed her to do it. How would that go? Would what you believe on paper show up in your everyday life? Would she be able to see your doctrine of God, your doctrine of salvation, your doctrine of marriage, of human dignity? Would she see it lived out in practice? I, believe, I bring this up because what we believe could change the way we live. What we believe on paper should change the way we live. But far too often, I know this is in my life true, and I suspect it is true in your life, what we believe doesn't 
trickle down to how we live. What we believe on paper stays on paper, and it doesn't make it into our everyday lives. And so there is a gap. There is a gap between what we believe and how we live. There's a gap between our doctrine and our life. And the goal of this sermon series is to help you close that gap. Is to help you close the gap by solidifying what it is you actually believe on these different topics we're going to go through. And how those beliefs change your Monday and your Tuesday all the way through Saturday. Wayne Grudem, a guy who wrote a systematic theology, a theology textbook that's literally this thick says, theology changes life. In fact, what you think about God deep down inside your heart is the biggest single factor in how you live your everyday life. We're calling this everyday theology because theology or doctrine or what we believe about something should change. Not just the boxes that we check on a survey, but it should change how we live every moment of every day. The word theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning from John 1, you may be familiar with that, meaning word. But really, logos has this idea that it is the summation or totality of a thing. It's where we get ology from, so biology. Ology is all of that, all that pertains to bio, life. So theology is all that pertains to the summation of all of that applies to God. Theos, God. So theology is a study of God. You see, theology is not something just for smart guys at seminaries who write big books. The only question for us is whether we do theology good or not because everyone is a theologian. Everyone in this room is a theologian. You do theology every single moment you think about God. Or you apply your understanding of God to something else in the world. There is no more important question in the universe than who is God and what is he like? Is there a God and what is he like? A.W. Tozer says, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds the, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So over the summer, as we go through this series, we're basically going to ask two questions every week. What do we believe about some certain area of theology? This week is the doctrine of God. Seems like a good place to start. Who's God? What do we believe about a certain area of theology, and why does it matter? What do we believe, and how does it change my life? What do we believe, and why does it matter? We start out this morning with God himself, the doctrine or the theology of God. Who is God? What is he like and why does it matter? Genesis 1-1 recites four of the most important, most studied, most analyzed, most world-altering words in history. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Before time, before creation, before everything, there was and is God. The existence of God is so foundational that everyone and everywhere and every time has an opinion and a position on the question, and they live in light of this, does God exist? Everyone has a position, does God exist? And it changes everything. There is no place or area of our lives 
that the existence of God doesn't press upon, shape, or mold how you live. There is no philosophy, no psychology, no scientific, no political, no sociological, no educational or entertainment system that is not shaped by whether or not you think God exists and who you believe him to be. There is no area. You see, the way we approach our children, the way we approach our spouses, the way we approach our boss, our friends, the way we approach joy in life, the way we approach disappointment in life, the way we think about sexuality, education, identity, meaning, purpose, life, death, and everything in between is all shaped by your view of God. This question, what we believe about God matters, Ideas have consequences because it changes everything. So we're going to dive in, and let me just say this. I think I've got the most blanks in the worship guide that I've ever had. I think I set a record today. So we got this is a fire hydrant. we got a lot to cover, and you're getting the Cliff Notes version of each of these things. So we're just going to scratch the surface. So here we go. Number one, God exists. Good place to start, right? God exists. We just read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God God exists and has always existed. He's at the very beginning and before, and himself has no beginning. Thomas Aquinas, this really, really old, long time ago, uh, church theologian, said that God was the uncaused cause. Think about that for a moment. He's the uncaused cause. Nothing caused him, but he causes everything to be. He causes everything, but yet nothing caused him. He has always existed and is the greatest being in the cosmos. God has no rival. Genesis 1, right, this creation story, its main objective is to teach us that God created the world. And its main objective is not to tell us how he created it necessarily, but to show us that there was no sun god or no ocean god or no tree god, but rather that there was one God who has no rivals who spoke all things into existence. The point is that there is no God on Mount Olympus who could challenge God. There is no God in the underworld who could threaten him. God exists and he is supreme. Y'all can amen that. That's amenable. All right, y'all talk. There we go. Why does this matter? That's what we believe, but why does it matter? Well, one, it gives us proper perspective. You see, when you start with the existence of God, it changes everything. It changes how you see the world, how you see humanity, how you think about everything. For example, when you're doing science, science will never ever conclude or hypothesize that something supernatural took place. It cannot. Science is not designed to do that. It is designed to look at natural causes. And so when you start with God, you know that science can sometimes only get you so far. And that it doesn't have all of the answers. That doesn't mean we don't do science or don't trust science. It means we know its limitations. Belief in the existence of God gives us perspective on who gets to determine right and wrong. It gives us perspective on who gets to define the terms. Who, who gets to tell us how things are supposed to be. We don't get to do that. He does. He gets to tell us right and wrong. It gives us a proper perspective on all of life. Second, it produces humility in us. It reminds us, as my mom used to always tell me, Brent, the world doesn't revolve around you. 
<laughs> I still haven't gotten that figured out. But it, if you understand a belief in God tells us we're not the greatest thing in the world. The world doesn't revolve around us. The bigness of God puts us in our rightful place that we would not exist without him. So we live then in gratitude, in subservience to him, in awe of being created, that God created and maintains, and that he invented all of this stuff, right? He invented color and smells. He invented humanity, and it humbles us, and it keeps us grounded. So number one, God exists. Number two, God is creator. Genesis 1-1 continues, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. An atheist or a naturalist will tell you that in the beginning there was nothing. And that through chaos, through random accidents of chance, the world came into existence. And so on the one hand, we say God designed you with intentionality and purpose. But a naturalist or an atheist would say that everything is a big cosmic accident. These are two vastly different worldviews. And they lead to vastly different places if we're consistent in our thinking. If this world is an accident, if this world is random, if this world just exploded into existence with no designer and no purpose and no forethought, then do you know what? Nothing matters. You have no purpose in life. There is, not, there is no such thing as justice. Nothing matters. There is no such thing as right and wrong. So live however the heck you want to. Die and be forgotten because nothing matters. But if God is creator, as we believe him to be, then you are designed with intention and purpose, which means you're designed and you have a purpose. And when you believe that, it completely changes the way you view the world and live in it. You don't see people as accidents who don't matter. You see them as creations. You see people as having value, as deserving justice when bad things happen to them. You intrinsically believe that people have purpose, that there is an end game, a, a telos, a, a point, a, a place you're heading toward. That there is a reason they are here and that they can achieve that purpose. It, it is the difference between an inventor and a landfill. An inventor labors over material and designs and sketches as they're trying to come up with something new, make something new, make something useful that will help people. And when they finish it, they build it, and it goes out, and it has a purpose. The, the car was designed with a purpose to, to transport people down the road. A, a guitar was designed with a purpose to be picked up and played music with. And that's how we view God, that God created and designed the world with purpose and with a plan. And it gives it value. But when you go to a landfill, you just chuck trash in it, right? You just throw stuff in there. Right? There's no forethought. You're not trying to, like, toss things just right to make some, some statue down there with your trash. You just throw it in. You're not trying to create anything useful. There's no thought that goes into it, no plan, no purpose, no meaning. It's just trash. 
And that is the atheist's worldview. That with no intentionality, no purpose, no plan, the universe and you just came into existence, and therefore you have no more value or purpose than does a pile of trash. Believing God is creator changes how we see people and the world. It's how we see our point for being here. Number three, God reveals himself. How is it that we know God exists at all? How is it that we know he is creator, and how is it that we know anything about God at all? It is only because God has chosen to reveal himself, chosen to share that information with us. It's because God has chose to make himself known. If God had not made this decision, we would still be in the dark. We would still be oblivious to his existence. But in God's kindness, in his love, in his desire to know us and to be known, he has revealed himself. He's made himself known. He's done this in three ways. Number one, he has revealed himself through creation. Romans 1, 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. It's plain, he says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The creation, the world presents itself to us, not as as an accident. The creation presents itself to us as designed. It's complication, it's nuance, it's ability to sustain life and actually have life thrive, it's beauty, it's diversity, it's, it's complexity. All point not to random chance, but to design. And if it, is, if it is designed, it means there was a designer. He reveals himself through creation too. He's revealed himself through Jesus. Hebrews 1.1 says, long ago... In many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Dorothy Sayers was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And she was at Oxford around the same time Lewis was. And she was famous for writing these detective novels. Uh, the main character of her detective novels, were his name was Lord Peter Whimsey. Readers loved following Lord Peter Whimsey and him solve crimes. However, after a couple books in, a few novels in, it was obvious that Peter Whimsey was this pretty eccentric, pretty weird, pretty kind of unhappy dude, and that there was something missing from his life. Something needed to happen. So Dorothy Sayers wrote a new character named Harriet Vane. She was a woman who was, in the book, she was a woman who wrote mystery novels, and she was one of the first women to ever go to Oxford and get through Oxford. This Harriet falls in love with Peter and proves to be the thing missing from Peter's life. And uh, past all of his eccentric weirdness, she falls in love with him and it changes him and for the better. His, her love fixes a lot of these quirks that he, was, he had. But here's what's interesting. Just like Harriet Vane, this fictional character, Dorothy Sayers was a mystery writer. And one of the first women to get through Oxford. Oxford. You see, Dorothy wrote herself into her own book under a fake name. She so fell in love with the character that she created that she wrote herself into the story to meet and fall in love and help Peter Whimsey. And has God not done the very same thing? That after he created us, loved us so much that he wrote himself into the story. He actually entered history, 
entered our story in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God was introducing himself to us, entering our story to love us and know us. So he's entered our story. We know him through Jesus. Three, he's revealed himself through his word. It is in the word of God, it is in the Bible that we not only learn of God's existence, but it is there he lays out for us his character, his nature, what his plans are for us, how to know him, how to be saved. Everything we need to know about God is laid out for us in his word. But why does this matter? <coughs> why does this matter? It matters because it means... It means we actually can know God. Like Nathan just said at the end right there, this, what was that word? How do you say that word? Inaccessible God? This God that we can't get to, we don't have access to? We actually can know him because he's revealed himself. We can know him truly as well. We don't have to make stuff up about God. We don't have to guess. We can know him. We can know him and we should strive to know him. Through creation, through knowing Jesus, and through chiefly studying his word. It also means that God has revealed himself to us. It also means that we can believe in absolute truth. We don't believe that truth is relative where I can have my truth and you can have your truth. I can have my Jesus, you can have your Jesus. Truth isn't relative to our perspective. We can know him as he actually is. As he's revealed himself to be. We can know the truth. We can know the truth of right and wrong. We can know the truth by studying his word. We can know God truly because he's revealed himself. Number four, God is Trinity. God is Trinity. The Trinity means that God eternally exists as three persons. Not three modes. Not three forms. Not three expressions. Not three ideas. Three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, distinctly, yet one God. Three distinct persons, the Father is not the Son. It is heretical, it is false to say that the Father died on a cross for you. He did not, the Son did. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they are all together one. We see this most clearly in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized, right? Jesus, the Son of God, is there in the water. The Father's voice comes and he says, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. See, all three persons acting separately, yet still they're one God. I'm the, that's all I got for you, right? Like, I can't, I can't, I can't parse that and I can't explain it any better. It's just what it is. You just got to take it with faith. But why does this doctrine of the Trinity matter? Like, why do we not just kind of abandon that and say, well, you know, God just kind of presents himself in three different modes? Because the Trinity is actually super important. One, God is community. Therefore, we're made in the image of community. You see, God has always existed, right? He has no beginning. But he's always existed as a community inside of himself. In his nature is community. Father, Son, and Spirit. So before creation, God wasn't lonely, right? The Father had the Son, and the Son had the Spirit, and the Spirit had the Father. He wasn't alone, right? And so we are literally made in the image of community. 
That means community and friendship is something that we don't just like, not something that's just fun. It is something that we need at our very core. We need community at our very core because we're creating the image of community. It's why one of our core values is we grow better together. These are never meant or created to be in isolation or made to be in community. But the second thing, second reason Trinity matters is because God is love. Now, if you're filling out the blanks in your worship guide, you might be wondering why the word in the blank was is and not love. And there's a reason for that. You see, for God, love is not simply a verb. Love is not simply something that he does. It's not simply an action. It's not simply something he gives. It is something he actually is. He actually is love. And that can only be true because of the Trinity. Because inside himself, the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father. And the Spirit loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. And every other religion, love is something that is created. And you had to, God would have had to create something in order to love it. But only in Christianity do we find a God who love is an essential attribute to who he is at his core because he's always been loving inside of himself. Without the Trinity, there would be no one for God to show love to. This matters in how we think about God's love. And it matters because when we know God's love, when we know that he is love, it flows into how we love him back and to how we love other people. We're created in the image of love itself, and so therefore we can truly love God and truly love people. Five, God is immutable. God is immutable. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that you, you could pick up the TV remote, hit the mute button, and that means you can never mute God. You can't shut him up. But that's not what it means. God is immutable means that God cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Understand, God cannot change his mind. He cannot change his plans. He cannot change his character. He is who he is, and he cannot change. And this is actually really important and really practical. If God could change, ask this question. If God could change... Would he change for the better or for the worse? If God could change, would he change for the better or change for the worse? If for the better, it would mean that God wasn't already perfect. And if he changed for the worse, it would mean that maybe he becomes evil. Maybe he decides not to keep his promises. But because God can never change, it means we can believe him. Not believe in him. But actually believe what he says. Believe him, that he's telling the truth. We can believe he's always telling the truth and that he will do what he said and keep his word. We can know that he won't lie, that he'll keep his promises. We can know that he's good and that he's trustworthy. It means that we can take his promises to the bank, that we can know that God doesn't change with the times. We can know that God is never outdated, that he's never behind, that he never needs to catch up. That his love for us is constant and that he can't decide one day to stop loving us. This matters for us because now we can live in confidence. We can live in confidence knowing that God is who he says he is, that he will always be who he says he is. That if God changed like we did, 
that we would be on shaky ground, always nervous, never knowing what God might do. But as it is, we can live in confidence that God will continue to love us, continue to be who he is no matter what. He will continue to work for our good no matter what. He will continue to keep his word no matter what because he does not change. Six, God is omni. Not really a word, but prefix. Omni is the Latin word for all. And there are four omnis we're going to look at. God is omni science, omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing. 1 John 3.20 clearly says, God knows everything. I'm pretty simple. God knows everything. God at all times knows everything about everything. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He understands how everything works. What is theoretical to us, what is super complicated to us, when we just scratch the surface, it is common sense to him. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about you that you don't know about you. He knows everything about the future. He knows everything. Very simple, right? Two, he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Luke one thirty-seven: For nothing will be impossible with God. There is nothing out of reach of God's power. There is no miracle too big, no feat too difficult. God can do anything. Now, let me clarify this for a moment. For us nerds who like to think about this kind of thing. God can do anything, sort of. He can do anything within his character. He can do anything within the rules of logic, which Spock would love. But he cannot do things outside of his character or outside of the rules of logic. So, God cannot lie. It's against his character. It's against his nature. He can't do it. Some people might ask you the question, well, can God make a rock so big that God himself cannot pick it up? No. No, he cannot. Because that is a nonsensical, illogical question. Because to make a rock that big, it would cease to be a rock and it would become God. So to say God can do anything is not technically true. But what it is to say is that he's all-powerful, meaning that he can speak the world into existence, he can make the sun stand still, he can raise the dead, he can accomplish anything that he needs to within the bounds of his nature and things that are sensical. Three, God is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 23, am I God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There is nowhere that God is not there. There is no place you can go that God is not also there. And maybe shockingly or surprisingly, you could even go to hell and find that God is in hell. Not that he is suffering in hell, and not that the people there feel his presence, because hell is, the, is a place of justice that is not the devil's justice, it is God's justice. God is everywhere. God isn't just, you know, we, we like to say all the time, you know, two or three are gathered, God is there. Well, what about when I'm by myself? Is he not with me? I got to get a buddy to do my quiet time with? Like, no. We take that verse out of context. That's about church discipline. God is with you all the time. He is everywhere. There's nowhere that you can escape his presence. Whether you're at home, you're, at home, you're alone, you're across the world on a mission trip, you go into outer space, God is there. 
God is omnibenevolent, meaning he is all loving or all good. His love is most clearly seen when he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But here's the reason I use this last one. If God was all-powerful and all-knowing and omnipresent everywhere, but he wasn't omnibenevolent, he wasn't all-loving, he wasn't all-good, that could be really, really scary. Because to have a God who could do anything, be anywhere, and know everything wasn't good. Nothing to stop him from being evil, to be bad, to mess our life up. Because he's all good. These become incredibly practical. If God is all of these omnis, as the scriptures say, it means that we can trust him in every situation. No matter what situations or what hardships, what trials, what adversities we face, we can have confidence that God knows every detail of the situation. Sometimes when I'm praying, you know, I'm trying to like fill God in on the details. It's like, y'all, he already knows. It's not like if I forget a detail, God's not going to be able to answer the prayer because he's like, oh, I didn't know this. You left this part out. Like he knows. He knows every detail of whatever situation, whatever trial I'm going through. He knows it better and more intimately than I do. He knows everything that's not, we only know what's right in front of us, right? We can only see what's right here and this time. He sees what's everywhere and in every time. He knows what's coming. And so when you face things, you can know that he knows what's going on. And when you face things, you can know that he knows every detail and that he's got the power to get you through it. He's got the power to navigate you through it, to heal you, to work through the worst evil and turn it for good. You can know that God's not freaking out. That he's like, man, I don't know if i got enough juice to fix this. But through the worst problems, he's working to fix it. And he's working for your good. And then when you, when you face hard things, you can know he's with you. You can know that he's not distant. He's not busy off with somebody else with bigger problems. He's not off in the clouds playing a harp like, hang on, i got to work on this, co- this chord. i got to get this down. He's not doing that. He is with you, hurting, praying, working, grieving, fighting with you. And if you're a Christian, literally inside you. You do not have to go to the chapel in the hospital to pray. Because he's with you as you sit beside the bedside of your loved one who is struggling. He can hear your innermost thoughts and your silent prayers. Without uttering a word, he can hear the groans of your heart. He's with you. And on top of all of that power, he loves us and he's good. So this means we can trust God not only to know how to get us through tough times, but that he can get us through tough times. God is big enough, wise enough, powerful enough, and present enough to see us through every storm and trial that we face. We can trust him, rely on him, and go to him whenever we need him because he's omni. Finally, God is holy. In the Hebrew language, when you want to create emphasis, uh, you do it in a way we don't do it in English. You do it by just repeating the word. And so if, you, if you're writing a novel in Hebrew and you want to talk about how a guy fell in a really deep hole, you would write, the guy fell in a, in a really whole hole. You would just repeat the word twice. And the repetition of the word would, would give emphasis that it's, it's bigger, it's more, it's something. So if you, so if you uh, uh, that's how you do that in the Hebrew. But there's only, word, only one word in the entire Hebrew Bible, that's the Old Testament, that is ever used three times. Only one word ever uh, has so much emphasis that it can be repeated a third time. It is called the trihagion. It is the word holy. 
over and over again, we see the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And we kind of take that for granted because we just think it's like poetic or like something. But it's in Hebrew, it is saying God isn't just holy or just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. It's, it's, he's the most holy. But what does it mean that God is holy? It means that he's set apart, that he's cut off from anything that is tainted by sin. It means that he is ultimate goodness, ultimate righteousness. It means that there's no stain, no defect, nothing broken, no, nothing distorted about him. It means that God hates sin, and because sin is injustice, sin is a curse and it's brokenness, and he hates all of it. It means that God, being perfectly good, must punish sin, and if he doesn't, he's not good. When Allah, the God of Islam, takes people into heaven, you know, theoretically, who do more good than bad, when the scale is just like this, and you got more good than bad, he says, well, you were good enough, you have 51% good, so you can come on in. It proves that Allah is not good. He's an evil God because he has low standards and allows evil into paradise. God does not. Nothing short of perfection can come into heaven. Nothing short of absolute perfection, which is not good for us, right? That points us to the gospel. Gospel that is God's love and God's holiness come crashing to me in the middle. There's this problem, right? God wants to make us a part of his family. He wants to bring us to heaven. But his holiness demands justice. So how can he love us and be holy at the same time? Well, he has to write himself into the story. He has to write himself into the story in order to win us back. To be the victim of his own justice. He had to become the perpetrator that we are and his holiness could be satisfied and his love could win the day. That on Jesus' back all the sins of the world were thrown and God poured out his holiness and justice so that his love could be reserved for us. You see, his holiness means that justice will always be satisfied. Which means, which means we do not have to get justice for ourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will return and he's going to set the world right. It means that we can live today as people who fight for what is right. People who fight for justice in a broken world. We are people who seek pure purity. We are people who hate sin and who work alongside God to set the world right. If you're reading along with us in, in, in our D groups, uh, gentle and lowly this week, we, we read a chapter about God's anger, Jesus' anger, and how he's, his anger rises with his compassion. And when he sees brokenness, when he sees the lame, when he sees the blind, when he sees injustice happening, his compassion goes up and so does his anger. And he's rightfully angry at the things broken in life. That's his holiness coming out. And when we, like God, see brokenness and sin and wrong things in the world, it should make us angry should make us angry, rightfully so. If God is holy, then our aim in life should be to become holy too. Become holy, to be set apart, to be different than the world, to be pure. So let's go back to our reporter friend. If our reporter friend embedded her life into yours, what would she observe in your home? What would she observe at your work and amongst your friends? Would she notice that the things you actually believe showed up in your life? Would she be able to tell a difference in her own life as an atheist and your life as a Christian? If not, then there's a gap between your theology and your practice. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to take steps to help close that gap. And if you're like me, there is a gap. 
and we all need to close it. That's why as a church we say that it is our aim to make Jesus essential in our hearts, lives, and homes, right? All of life to make Jesus essential because there's gaps there. We haven't all done it. The most faithful in this room has not made Jesus essential in every area of their life. And so let's take steps to close the gap. What we practice what we preach, we practice what we believe. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you've revealed yourself. You've made yourself known so that we can know these things about you. And God, though we've just scratched the surface of who you are, I pray this morning that you would do one of two things in our lives. Either one, that you have you taught us something new, right, and that, or that we would have taken something we've known and that we can see how it, it applies in our life. How it should change the way we think or change the way we live or change the way we act. Father, for, for the one in this room who doesn't believe in you, who would be like this reporter we talked about, who this atheist or this agnostic or person who's just kind of on the fence, I'm just not quite sure. Father, would you show them this morning that you are the uncaused cause, that you are the one who spoke the world into existence. You exist and you've revealed yourself and you've made yourself plain through creation and through writing yourself into our story and entering history. You've made yourself known to us. If you're here this morning, you do not know Jesus, you don't believe in God, you've never come to Christ and let His holiness and His love take care of your sin and wash it all away and make you perfect. This morning as we sing this song, come up here and let me show you how you can do that. By throwing yourself on His mercy. It's easy. If you're here this morning and you do believe and you trust Him, God, I pray that you would help us close the gap so that what we believe shows up in how we live and that the world may know by looking at our life there is a God in heaven. Father, we love you. In Christ's name we pray all people said. Stand together.